And uh, I'm, the reason that excites me, first of all, is because for the first time, I will get to lay my eyes on my precious Savior's face. I don't know what he looks like, but I'm excited to find out. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to having the opportunity to stand in his presence, to experience the fullness of his presence and his love, and to be able to give all of my heart and all of my sense to him as well. Another thing I'm looking forward to is a glorified body. Amen? I mean, just think of how different this body is going to look. It'll be skinny. It won't have a hoarse, raspy voice. It won't be coughing. It'll probably still have a head of hair like this, because I do believe this is the perfect head of hair. <laughs> just kidding. But aren't you, aren't you looking forward to the wonders of heaven, the glories of heaven? I used to think as a kid, all these things that would be so amazing when we get to heaven. Streets of gold, gates of pearl, mansions. And I used to think, boy, heaven's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. And the closer I get to heaven, the more I realize that heaven's not amazing because of what it's made of. Heaven's amazing because of who's there. And uh, as we get older, I guess, we, we long for the presence of God. Just the closeness. The I can't imagine just being able to sit at His feet throughout eternity. What an amazing thought. Be able to hear Him tell of His love for us and for us to fellowship throughout all of eternity. I don't know if we're going to be instantly knowing everything when we get there or if we're going to spend eternity trying to be taught by God all these things that He's inexhaustible in teaching. But I do know, I do know that I'm looking forward to it. Uh, looking forward to be delivered from this body of sin. I was talking with somebody the other day and they were saying, why did these things happen? And I said, well... We're living in a sin, sin-cursed world. And one of these days we'll be delivered from this. And we look forward to those things. And um, I don't know about you. I'm getting excited about the rapture and I'm ready to go whenever God's ready to take me. I don't really like the prospect of dying. I don't really want to do that. But only mainly because I don't want to go through the process of it. Uh, but even if I have to go through that, I, I'm ready to go. I'm so ready. Uh, death does not scare me. It's not something I'm fearful of. Uh, I may not enjoy the process of going through it, but I, I'm not scared of it. And uh, I, I hope that you're ready today. That if, if Christ came back before we finish this message, you're ready. And if you're not, my heart is pleading with you today. Don't wait. Do not wait. Put your faith in Him today. Trust Him today. There's nothing you can do to save you from yourself, from your sins. There's nothing you can do works-wise. You cannot work enough good works to save you from your sins. It's not going to happen. There's only one that lived righteous enough to do that. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. And He was willing to put your, your penalty, your record of sin, the cost of your sin on Himself. And He paid that for you. And you can sit there and try to earn your salvation even though it's already been paid for. But you're not going to make it. The only way you're going to get there is by trusting that what Christ did for you on Calvary is sufficient. And that's all you're trusting in to get you to heaven. His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, 
and the paid penalty on Calvary through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And I hope and pray that you'll trust Him today. Nehemiah chapter 2, if you will. Nehemiah chapter 2. The nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament always had a rocky time uh, of going back and forth between being in a spirit of revival and loving God and pursuing after God to also uh, desiring to be like other nations and getting involved in idolatry and marrying and intermixing with other nations, which they were not supposed to do at that time. (coughs) And oftentimes God would have to bring judgment on them. And so as you go through the Old Testament reading, you'll find that there are cycles of revival, decline, the, the revival began to wane, usually because of the prosperity of God on their, on their nation as a whole. They became comfortable. They became um, apathetic. And it led to laziness and pride that led to idolatry, that led to forsaking God, that led to God's punishment, that led to Israel's repentance, And once again, you'd see the cycle start over with revival again, God's deliverance and revival. Over and over and over throughout the history of the Old Testament, you'll see this. God used different countries, different nations to bring judgment uh, to the Israelites. Probably one of the most notable ones would be the Philistines. For many, many years, the Philistines off and on were used uh, to judge Israel. Um, Egypt would have been one of those. uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonian Empire, the Persian uh, Empire, um, the Greece Empire, Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire. Uh, all of these were used by God over the years. Sometimes he used just some smaller groups, the Amaleks and um, the Amalekites, different things like that, that would uh, come in and uh, would uh, uh, bring them into slavery. So the uh, uh, Samaria would oftentimes come in and overtake them and put them under servitude. Nebuchadnezzar was probably one of the world's greatest conquerors. Um, it's not known quite as much as Constantine, who was the youngest man to ever conquer the known world. But Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful king. He was the king of the Babylonian Empire, one of the first great world uh, empires of the uh, what we consider the modern era, not the ancient era. Um, like back in the Egypt's uh, dynasties and things like that. But uh, three different times he came to the city of Jerusalem and set siege around the city. Every time the city would try to rebel and not pay the tribute that was owed to him, he would come back and and, uh, set siege to it again. In the process of uh, bringing Israel under his domain, he came in and he destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem's walls. He tore them down. The beautiful uh, Solomon's Temple that was beyond anything you could ever imagine as far as a building is concerned, probably nothing like it ever has been or ever will be again, was destroyed and lay in in ruins. Uh, One of the uh, grandsons of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belteshazzar, took the instruments, the sacred instruments of the temple, and defiled them in a banquet. Some of you uh, maybe recall that. Uh, story in the book of Daniel. And uh, this is kind of 
the condition that Jerusalem is in at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. The walls are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The, the people are beaten down. They're under um, the rule at this time of Artaxerxes, who's um, the king of Persia. There's a uh, Mede-Persian combination empire there for a period of time under uh, Darius and then later Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was, believe it or not, the grandson, as best we can tell, of uh, Queen Esther. And so if you wonder how Queen Esther fits into this whole story, uh, the reason that Artaxerxes shows such favor to Nehemiah is because his grandmother was Esther, and she was a Jew. And so I want you to kind of get the background, the historical setting, the context of where we're at in the history of Israel as we begin reading here in verse number uh, chapter uh, uh, 1. Uh, we're going to back up into chapter 1 just a little bit. Uh, just so you can get the background, then we're going to be into chapter 2 for the message. Let's start in verse number 4 of chapter 1, if you will. <clears throat> now, let's, let's just go on to the first. We'll, we'll read the first verse. I'm sorry. Let's start at the beginning, and I, I don't want you to miss something here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, uh, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, I was in Shushan, the palace, and Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity concerning Jerusalem. So he's inquiring of a man who was there, what is Jerusalem like? And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned in certain days, certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And he said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great, terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive to thine, uh, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad the nations. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though there were of you cast unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there." And so Nehemiah prays a prayer to God. And not that God needed to be reminded of the covenant, but he's saying, Lord, you remember that covenant you made? Uh, the one where you said, if we reject you, that you would scatter us. And if, if you would turn to you, that no matter how far we were scattered, you'd bring us together. He says, Lord, this is what I'm praying for. I want you to be reminded of the covenant you made. And then I want you to know this is what my heart is praying for. Now, verse number 10, Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Alright, now, chapter 2, we're going to change the scenes, and he's going to be in the presence of the king. And I need you to know something, that in that day, the king's cupbearer was... Uh, when you were in the presence of the king, you were not to be uh, in, a, in a condition of sorrow. Uh, if you had a bad attitude, if you 
gave any kind of sorrowful look in the presence of the king, literally the king could have you killed for that. It was a very, very serious thing. You were to be uh, very upbeat, very delightful, and uh, to try to be cheerful in the king's presence. As we get to chapter 2, I want you to notice, and it makes, very, it makes um, an important mark here on the king. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Well, that's a great testimony, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if it could be said of you and I? I had not before been sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my count, not my countenance be sad, when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to God of heaven. I love that phrase. The king's asking him, what do you want? You know what Nehemiah's first response was? <laughs> I'll tell you what mine would have been. Well, I, I, I've got my house that's it's got a big mortgage on it. I'd like to have that paid off. And I've got this car. I've got this uh, physically I need. I need some, some physicians to do something. I'd, I'd have a whole list of things. The king comes into Nehemiah and he says, uh, he says, what is it that you need? And the first thing he does is he goes to God with it. Isn't that wonderful? It says in verse number 4, So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, The queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him, set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And the letter, and the letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and of the palace, uh, which appeared, uh, which appertained to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me. According, and I want you to notice this phrase, to the good hand of my God upon me. Father, we come to you once again. I pray that you'll bless the message and speak to our hearts. And Lord, may we learn something today that will uh, help us to be more of a Christian, to be a better testimony. But Father, above all, to be one that longs to have your presence in our life. Above everything that we would follow wholeheartedly after what you want for us. So help us as we come to this passage to learn from it and the things that you would have for us today. That it will stir us afresh and new and cause us to have a, a zeal and a hunger and a thirst for you. Bless all that we say and do here. And Lord, above all, help us to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. What a remarkable answer to prayer. The fact that here's a king that has this nation under subjection. I mean, if you're a king and you've got this, these people paying tribute, they're under your servitude and the walls are broken down and the, the, uh, the, the, the palace is broken down in the city, that's where you want them, isn't it? I mean, the first, last thing you want to do is let them rebuild their walls and get strong again and perhaps uh, turn from you. And so for the very fact that God is prospering Nehemiah here, and I want you to notice something about this. Nehemiah, is, he doesn't come from uh, the line of priests. 
He doesn't come from the line of, uh, of the Levites. He doesn't come from the line of leadership. Uh, Nehemiah is just a normal, common, everyday man. And I, I love this about the story of Nehemiah. It's one of the most uh, encouraging things to my heart. Because the truth is this. God can do extraordinary things through anybody. You don't have to be somebody special. You don't have to be born into a certain house. You don't have to have a certain income. You don't have to have a certain position in life. God can use anybody who's willing to be used by Him. God can use anybody who's got a zeal and a desire and a heart to do what God says. And I love this because over and over again you're going to see this idea of God's hand prospering. Nehemiah, it prospers him. It helps him along the way. So you got the background, and we've spent the time here to lay the the foundation and the background. And we're going to build on top of this for the message today. Because now Nehemiah is going to make his travels here. So in verse number 9, we're going to pick up here. It says, Then I came, chapter 2, verse number 9, Then I came to the governors beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. This is not part of the message. I just want to say this in in passing. Anytime you attempt to do God's work, God's way, in His will, you're going to meet some opposition. Just mark it down. It's going to be there. There's going to be people that are going to try to dissuade you, and there are going to be people that are not happy that you're seeking the welfare of the things of the Lord. Mark it down. Do not let it stop you. We're going to see more about Sanballat and uh, uh, and uh, the uh, and Tobiah here in just a little bit. Verse eleven. So I came to Jerusalem. <laughs> so it didn't matter what these guys said. He kept on going. A good, good, good lesson to learn there. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night. I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dungport, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, to the king's pool. But there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall. And turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. The rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the the Jews, nor to the priest, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste. The gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. And be no more, notice this, a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, here's this phrase again, which was good upon me. As also the king's words that he had spoken unto me, and they, they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. When Sanballat the Hornite, and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite, and Gosham the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing you do? Will you rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right, no memorial in Jerusalem. I want to give you four things, uh, four lessons here to learn. And then I'm going to give you a challenge and an application towards the end of it. But I want you to notice, first of all, this idea of Nehemiah. Uh, I want you to notice, first of all, that he had a right focus. 
Nehemiah had a right focus. In, in chapter 1, in those first four verses, when he hears about the condition of the city of God, the temple of God, the walls of Jerusalem, uh, the Bible says in verse number, uh, verse number 4, and it came to pass, of chapter 1, came to pass when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed. There was, there was a vision that God was putting in Nehemiah's heart. He, he saw a need that was there and, and he began to say, Lord, I, I, need to, I need to know what you want me to do. And so the first thing that Nehemiah does in this case is he, he focuses his vision. And he does this in three ways. There's three ways that it speaks of here in verse number four. And I want to start off by saying this, that God has a purpose and a work for every single one of us. God has something for you to do, and God has something for me to do. And the greatest and most noble thing a Christian can do, one of the great exercises of the Christian faith, ought to be to focus on that which God has for me to do, to put my focus in on it. Have you noticed how often we get so easily distracted? I mean, I'll be right in the middle. Ooh, there's a squirrel over there. We, 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 we get distracted so quickly, don't we? Some people call it ADD, attention deficit disorder. I would say it's spiritual ADD. There are so many times that while we all have an understanding and know that God has a workforce, how often we are entangled and encumbered with the things of this world and it distracts us. And one of the great and noblest pursuits of the Christian life ought to be for Christians to say, Lord, give me focus to know the work that you have for me to do. I, I want to make sure that I'm, I am laser focused and laser accurate on the things that you want for me. The Apostle Paul was telling Timothy when he was writing to him, he said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a good soldier. Don't get entangled. Don't get encumbered. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We ought, we ought not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage of sin. There ought to be, there ought to be the idea that our, our hearts desire, our zeal, and I think the heart of every Christian ought to be one that longs for and hungers for and thirsts for and aches for. Lord, I want to know your will and I want to know your work, your work for my life that you have for, for me. This way, this plan that you have for me. And so Nehemiah has a work that God has for him. And the first thing he does is he puts his focus upon it. Now what is, what is Nehemiah's role in life? What is he doing at this point? He's the cupbearer to what? The king. That's a pretty big that's a pretty big role. I'm sure he has his hands full doing that. I'm sure that there are certain responsibilities that he has there. But when it came to the work of the Lord, I don't see I don't see Nehemiah sitting in his room in the evening time agonizing. I don't see him seeking harshly at Lord, how can I be a better cupbearer? What I do find him saying is, Lord, there's a need that you have. And in verse number 4, he says there's four things he does. He says, when I heard these words, I sat down and noticed this. First of all, he wept. He wept. He allowed what he had heard from his ears to affect his heart. 
he realized that the work of God was a work that was a more noble, it was a greater work than any cupbearer to a king could ever be. And he begins to weep. He weeps for the reproach that it is bringing to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this? Above all, Nehemiah wanted God to be glorified. You're going to find over and over again as he approaches the people and gets them to be involved in the work that he brings up this idea that we be not a reproach. God is a God of heaven and people need to know he's a God of heaven. We as God's people in the 20th, in 2024, we're sitting here saying, well, it's okay that people take our God down and attack our Bible and we sit by idly. Can I tell you, there needs to come some zeal in the hearts of God's people. Saying, we have a God in heaven that is the King of kings. And He's the Lord of lords. And He's above all. And He is preeminent of all. He is the Creator of all. There's nothing that exists that does exist that's without Him. There needs to be some of God's people once again that would sit down and weep over the reproach that our God is going through in this day that we live. To say, Lord, I cannot believe the way this world reproaches you. And it's one thing for the world to just despise God because they see Him for who He is. It's a whole other thing entirely for them to be reproached because of the conduct of His children. He weeps. And I want you to notice, secondly, He mourned certain days and fasted. He fasted. We talk about fasting in the day that we live most of the time because... Uh, we go to the doctor, and the doctor says you need to fast for health reasons. Can I tell you, fasting in the Old Testament was something that was an emotional event. It was something where the heart was so broken and contrite over something, something it was so burdened over that the, the, the thought of eating food at a time like this. There have been a few times in my life, a few times, where something so emotionally draining to me happened that days had gone and I had not eaten. It wasn't because I wasn't hungry. It wasn't because I mealtime came and I thought, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to fast during this mealtime. I was so consumed by what was happening in my life, the thought of eating did not even register in my mind. And this is the type of fasting they would have in these days where they would be so consumed emotionally and prayerfully. And Lord, I need you to do something that they would just, they would fast until the prayer was answered. And he prayed. You say, how do I regain my focus? How do I seek for that which God has for me to do? Make it the paramount thing you seek for in your life. Make it the thing you look for above all. Spend some time weeping over it. When, are, when was the last time tears streamed down our faces saying, Lord, I, I long for this. I remember in the early days of our country and days of the Great Awakening in small country wooden churches had altars at the front and oftentimes they were referred to as the mourner's bench. Where people would come and you would see tears stained on the altars of the wood. People weeping. Not just sinners that were coming to be saved, but even God's people who would come often. Burdened and weeping 
I heard a preacher say now one of the problems in our churches is we have dry rotting altars anymore. He wept. He fasted. He prayed. By the time God was done with him, Nehemiah had his focus where it needed to be. You say, how do you know that? Because he begins by bringing to mind to God in his prayer, Lord, you made a covenant. And the covenant was that if we would not follow you, that we would be scattered. But if we would turn to you, you would gather us. No matter how far we were scattered, you would turn and bring us back. Here's how I know Nehemiah's heart was in focus. Look with me in verse number 6 of chapter 1. Let thy ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night. You ever read through Scripture quickly and miss things? When was the last time we prayed day and night? If we pray more than 10, 15 minutes, we think we've lingered in prayer. You might have praised day and night. Notice he says, Which I pray thee before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins, notice this, of the children of Israel. And if that's all that Nehemiah had said in this verse, I would look at that and say, I don't think Nehemiah's quite there yet. Because Nehemiah would be saying, Lord, these people you have, they've done bad. They, they've been, they've been, and I'm praying that you'd give them deliverance. No, but I want you to notice where Nehemiah's heart is. Look at the very next phrase in verse number six, which we have sinned against the both. Notice this. It goes from the children of Israel to the children of Israel and I, meaning we, to all of a sudden now he's saying, wait a minute, that's not good enough yet. Lord, I. I and my father's house have sinned. Can I tell you this? Our focus will never be right if all we ever do is look around at the state of Christianity and say, Lord, Christianity's in a mess. We will never be as focused as we should be as long as we say, Lord, Christianity, and I'll include myself in that, we're a mess. Where the focus comes to be exactly where it needs to be is when I come and say, Lord, I'm a mess. I have sinned. I need you to bring restoration. Nehemiah's heart is in the right area. His focus is right. And then I want you to notice as we get over to chapter number 2. We're going to begin in verse 12. Once his focus was right, I want you to notice that he sought out the work that God had for him. He sought out the work that God had for him. Verse number 12, And I arose in the night, I and some few... This chapter 2, verse 12. I rose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither I told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon, and I went out by night 
by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain into the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. These things were so uh, broken down and so overcome with rubble that literally he couldn't even go through with the beast that he had under him. And he goes and he takes an account of the work. In verse 15 it says, Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. Can I tell you this? It does you no good to try to view the work that God has for you to do with your focus blurred. You can't see it clearly. You wouldn't know what work to be done. The primary thing was first for his focus to be set. For God to keenly make him aware that there is a work to do. To bring it into sharp focus for him to see. And having his focus corrected. Having God's eyes going through his heart and his mind as he views these things. He's able to clearly see the work that God has for him to do. I'm amazed at how many things we, we wrap ourselves up in under the name of, of doing it for the Lord that are really nothing more than things we want to do with our lives. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what, I, I just want to start this, this thing over here and it's going to give me, a, you know, I, 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 think, I think the Lord wants me to go out here and buy a fleet of airplanes. And I'm going to just fly them around. I love flying airplanes. And I'm going to go out here and I'm going to fly these airplanes. And I'm going to use it to share the gospel around the world. Well, wait a minute. Is my desire to share the gospel around the world or is it to fly the airplane? Somebody whose focus is not right is going to look at it and say, I've got to get a fleet of airplanes so I can do God's work. Somebody's got the right focus that says, I've got to do God's work. And if he uses tools to do that, he'll do it. Big difference. Big difference. He goes out and he begins to see the work. His heart is moved. In John chapter number 4, in the, hold your place, and Nehemiah, we're going to come back there for a moment, but the Gospel of John chapter number 4, I want you to see. John chapter 4, verse number 34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. This is what you would call having a right focus. That's your, that's your view. That's your focus. I want to know the will of God and the work that He wants me to do. That's my focus. Then He goes on to talk about seeing the work. Verse number 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. Our vision must be to do the will of Him that sent us. And having a clear vision, we must then look upon the work. I've met a lot of people who work a lot on their vision. They spend a lot of time praying and seeking, Lord, what is it You have me to do? They've wept and they've They've prayed and they've maybe even fasted. And then they sit around, distracted. They don't look for the work. They don't seek for the work that God's given for them to do. 
Nehemiah goes so far as to approach the king, get letters, make preparations to go survey this great work. And then he does it. He goes and he looks at it. And I want you to notice thirdly, not only did he have a right focus, not only did he seek the work, but thirdly, he shared it with others. I think this is a wonderful truth, and I don't want you to miss this one. Look with me in verse 17. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, and also the king's words, which he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Let me, let me stop here for a moment. And I want to try to, to lay another principle here and then make two, two, I'm going to pull two very strong principles on this verse. Oftentimes when we read a passage or teach a passage on this, we think in terms of God's work through His local church. Boy, the walls of the local church are broken down. We're not doing all the things we're supposed to do to reach the world. And there is certainly an application that can be made that way. But I want us to understand something. That it is not only about the work of God, but we are dealing here with also the temple of God. The foundation of the temple lay in ruins. Part of the work was the work on the temple itself. And while, yes, we must be about our business of the work of the Lord when it comes to the local New Testament church and sharing the gospel, (coughs) and there are things that certainly have been broken down and destroyed that need to be rebuilt Can I tell you this? At certain times of application of this passage, we must also look at the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is us. Are there walls broken down here that need to be fixed? There's two things that take place, and I don't want you to miss them here in verse number 17 and verse number 18. Having a right vision, seeing a work that needs to be done, whether it be in the church house or in the temple. And both need work in the day we live, there's no doubt. Having the right vision and seeing the work. I want you to notice he then shares with others two things. First of all, he shares the fact that the testimony of the Lord is of utmost importance. The walls being torn down, whether it be in the local church or whether it be in the temple of this body, is a reproach to the cause of Christ. In verse 17, he says, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, (coughs) and the gates thereof are burnt with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more, here's the phrase, a what? A reproach. People were looking at them. They are the named children of God. Jerusalem is His city. The temple resided in the city of Jerusalem. It was His place of residing with His people. And them being in ruins and burned with fire was a reproach. (coughs) And before he tells them the second motivating thing that he's going to tell them, his first motivation was, folks, we've got to do the work. Because if we do not, it is a reproach to Christ. It is a reproach to Almighty God. I would say this, that there are some things that need to be repaired in our churches today. Because they're a reproach to the cause of Christ. There are things that need to be repaired in our temples today. 
by way of testimony because they are a reproach to God Himself. And that ought to be our primary thing. God's glory is above all. He is to have the preeminence. He's the one that is to be high and lifted up. He's the one that is to be exalted. But then I want you to notice in verse number 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me. There's a second reason why he said we need to be busy doing this work. One of them is for the testimony's sake of God. The second one is so that the world can see the mighty hand of God being used through His people. Our world is looking today for Christians that not only name the name of Christ, but see Christ working through them. That see Christ living out in their lives. That see Christ powerfully doing transforming work in the hearts and lives of men. And we're living in a day where it seems like we're powerless in this area. That there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of transforming work going on. That there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of stirring and revival work going on in the house of God or even in the temple of God as we try to walk in a righteous way, in a holy way, in a way that is a testimony to this world. There are two things in this, these verses, verse 17 and 18. The first one being the testimony of Christ. The second one being for the world to see the good hand of their God upon them. To see Him working in might and with power in their lives. Somebody said in the early 1900s, I wish I could remember, it might have been Alexander McLaren, I think might have been the one I was reading, the theologian that wrote some commentaries back in the early 1900s. I think he's the one might have said, it might have been Andrew Murray. But one of the ones I was reading had made this statement. They said it used to be in the early days of our country that the church had very little influence over society, but they had the power of God on their ministries. He said now it seems like they have all the influence of society, but no power. I think a lot of us have forsaken and traded Influence for power. When is the last time that we were concerned about the testimony of the Lord? The things that are broken down in His house, the things that are broken down in this temple, things that are lying in ruins, that are in shambles, that are a poor testimony and a reproach to the cause of Christ. When was the last time we were concerned to repair them and build them back up? When was the last time we were We were ready and willing for people to see the mighty hand of God doing a transforming work in my life. A transforming work. Something that changed me from the inside out. I want you to notice, fourthly, he strengthened his faith. Verse number 19, when Sanballat the Horonite, the Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. They said, what is this thing you do? Will you rebel against the king? And they, they laughed him to scorn, mock him. They despised him, which means they hated what they were doing. And then they falsely accused him as if they were going to rise up and rebel against the king. You know, many Christians that I know would have given up after the first one just being ridiculed and laughed at. A lot of them, maybe that were a little bit stronger than that, would have maybe given up by the time they were being hated and resented for what they were doing. 
I know a lot of Christians that by the time they are falsely accused of being rebellious to the king, they would have thrown their hands up and quit. But I want you to notice that he strengthened his faith. Look what he says. Then answered I them and said unto them, I want you to notice the first words out of Nehemiah's mouth. Was not in defense of himself. It was not even saying, but I have the king's uh, permission. The very first words of Nehemiah to them were, He said unto them, The God of heaven, He will prosper us. That's what you call having the right focus. Well, what about King Artaxerxes? Didn't he allow you to do all this thing? Not if it wasn't for the God of heaven. The God of heaven far exceeded the authority of King Artaxerxes. In Nehemiah's eyes, the only opinion that mattered was, did the God of heaven put his hand upon me to do this work? You say, Pastor, if God had put this work upon Nehemiah and had not had Artaxerxes do all the things for Nehemiah, what do you think would have happened? Nehemiah would have found a way to do the work. Because the most important thing to Nehemiah was not the approval of the king. It was the approval of the king of kings. The Lord of Lords. He strengthened his faith. Why is it that we are so easily swayed in our vision? Why is it we are so easily swayed from seeing the work that God has for us to do? Why is it that we are so easily swayed with, with being public about the work that God's given us to do and being concerned about the testimony and the might of God working in our lives by other people's opinions of us? Where's the steadfastness of a Christian that will stand and say, no matter what others think, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For Christians that will rise up and say, I'm going to be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Where are those Christians that will say, our God, He will deliver us, but if not, be it known unto thee, O King, we will not bow. Where are these Christians? Because he had a right focus. Because he was able to see the work clearly. Because he shared the work with others. God did an amazing thing. Verse number 18, I want you to notice as he brings the message to the others. He says, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, I like that. They said, the people, the ones that heard what God was doing in Nehemiah's life, they said, let us rise up and build. Now, does that strike anybody else the way it strikes me? You know what normally happens in the day we live? Somebody will get on fire for God. They'll get a right vision. They'll get a view of what God's work is. They'll start telling other people, here's what God has for me. And then they say, now I want you to come help me do this work. When the focus was right and it was God's work, he shared it with others. You know what happened? God worked on the heart of others too. And Nehemiah didn't have to say one word to them. They said, 
than Nehemiah. Let's rise up and build. Let's rise up and build. Can I tell you this? That if we could ever get to this place where Nehemiah was, we would not have to go around and beg and plead for God's people to do a work. They would see the work and the need and they would say, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's roll up the sleeves. Let's get it done. In chapter 3, as you go on through chapter 7, you're going to find that they do an amazing thing and God prospers them along the way. They do it in, the, in, in, in good times. They do it when they're being persecuted. They do it when they're being threatened. They do it when there's times that there's enemies that can even come and, and defeat them. They keep their hand to the work. Nehemiah's enemies come and they say, come down off the wall, let's talk about this. He said, hey, I'm too busy, I'm working for the Lord, I don't have time for this. Oh, that we could be such a man as Nehemiah. Not extraordinary, nothing about his life extraordinary. Just a normal man who had an extraordinary God. And by his willingness, God did an amazing work through him. Let me ask you this morning, where's your focus? Are our walls broken down? Are there some things that need to be fixed in our temples? Are we a reproach to Christ? In our church, are there things we're a reproach to that we should be doing? Maybe we need to start the way Nehemiah did. Maybe we need to start weeping and fasting and praying and saying, Lord, give me a right focus. Give me a right focus. Help me to see it. Help me to see it clearly. Then help us to see the work and then to say, Lord, I want to do the work. I want to be obedient to that. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed.